This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome to this episode of Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I'm your host, Justin. Got a pretty damn good episode for you today. We're going to be talking about the 1919 Chicago Black Sox scandal. It is opening day today in the baseball world. As most of you know, I am a diehard Cubs fan, and my highest download numbers have always come from the city of Chicago. So, figured why not? It's perfect time. This is going to be a two-part series. First part is going to document the game, how the fix happened, some of the details of it, how the World Series actually went, and then part two is going to be when they were all indicted and getting banned from baseball and how all that went down. And we're also going to talk about, kind of discuss, whether or not Shoeless Joe Jackson was involved in the fix. That's still a very debatable topic. For those of you on Patreon, you are listening to this episode ad-free, and I thank you very much for those donations, and I do have to thank some new Patreon supporters. We have Joseph H., Chantel Duval-Cooper, Heather Thompson, David Menges, I hope that's how you pronounce your last name, David, Ashley Loveless, Matthew, and Elena Edmondson. Elena, I hope that's how you pronounce your first name as well. It's uh, Elena or Elena. Yeah, pretty sure it's Elena. But if not, I do apologize. You can send me some hate mail if you want to, and I will correct it on the next episode for sure. All of you $10 tier supporters, please email me, get a hold of me, message me on social media so we can do your video calls. For those of you who are interested in joining Patreon, you can always go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. We have a $2, $5, and $10 tier. Uh, All tiers get ad-free content. I'm going to start uploading every single fucking episode um, ad-free up there, along with three episodes bonus a month that are not on the regular feed. So all kinds of weird shit, paranormal, weird stuff, unsolved murders, regular deaths, murders, literally everything. But uh, yeah, if you want to check it out, might be worth your while. Also got some live show news. Me, Brohio Podcast, and Hillbilly Horror Stories will be doing a live show in Louisville, Kentucky, Coming up on April 23rd from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And it's guaranteed you're going to have a good time if you show up. It's always a lot of fun with the live shows. Uh, A link to that will be in this episode description. If not, you can just Google live and unruly in Louisville. You can either put in one of our podcast names and it'll come right up on, on Google. So it's not really that hard to find. It's, I mean, we always have a great time, and there's usually a nice little after party at a close by bar that I'm usually attending or hosting or whatever, and 
I will sit there and drink beers and talk about all kinds of weird shit, history, Wild West, Mafia, unsolved cases, paranormal. I'll sit there and drink beers and talk with you about that kind of shit all night. That's what I do. (laughs) So let's go ahead and get on with this show. Greatest of them all was Shoeless Joe Jackson. Comiskey bragged that he was putting together the greatest ball team ever and sent his business agent with a blank check and instructions to bring me back this fellow Jackson. When the World Series was ready to occur, people really expected the Chicago White Sox to beat the Cincinnati Reds. They were clear favorite. Ty Cobb once told me that Shoeless Joe Jackson was the finest pure hitter he'd ever seen in his life. The prosecutor asked if he had agreed to to throw the World Series for $20,000, and Joe said yes, he did. And the prosecutor said, did you accept $5,000? And Joe said, yes, he did. On page 11 of the confession, when they asked Joe, did he play to win? Did he hit to win? Did he run the bases to win? Yes, I did all those things. I, I played to win. None of these players were very well educated. Happy Felsch had a sixth grade education. Shoeless Joe Jackson had no education at all. They all knew what they were doing. People say, well, gee, Joe Jackson was illiterate. He can't read and he can't write. Well, he knew how to count. Yes, some of the players were definitely underpaid. There was constant gambling. The game was infested with gamblers. And the Black Sox scandal was merely the biggest example of mass gambling that there was. No, I think Comiskey deserves blame, absolutely. They weren't charged with throwing ball games. They were charged with a fraud against Charles Comiskey's business. And you couldn't blame some of the White Sox for uh, trying to pick up a little loose change here and there. Nothing could be proven. You needed evidence. And what evidence did they have? They had lots of rumors. But how could they prove it? There were eight men on a team that were going to make sure that the Chicago White Sox didn't win the World Series. He just waited until the trial was over and then suspended them for life. They paid the price for all the problems that baseball was having with gambling. What Landis did was make it very clear that throwing games was the capital crime of baseball. The way he did that was the eight players who were involved he banned for life. The Black Sox scandal resulted in the banishment of eight Chicago players, including shoeless Joe Jackson, the man with the third highest career batting average of all time. In order to talk about the 1919 World Series, we have to understand what was going on socially there at this time, and we're going to add a little bit of context because there's a lot of context to this. So let's talk about 1919 in general. This was right towards the end of the First World War. A lot of the troops started coming home at the end of 1918. Everybody was just kind of tired of it. They wanted to be happy again. Uh, The World Series between the White Sox and the Cincinnati Reds, this was part of that. Now, you got to remember, they didn't even do the games on radio back then, I believe in 1919. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. This was one of the very few forms of entertainment that people had, and they would flock to these baseball stadiums. I mean, this was it. It was the national pastime. So when 1919 started, everybody's like, yes, they're hungry for excitement, for fun, entertainment, and this was going to be the World Series that, like I had mentioned, is going to do that. Now, the Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 1917. In 1918, 
they lost a lot of the good players that they had because people were either going into the military or a lot of them were going into draft-exempt jobs. So they were not able to repeat that World Series. But the team that they had put together for 1919 was, for the most part, the same team that had won the World Series in 1917. And there was no question about how good they really were. All of the sports writers, they were saying that the White Sox would probably take it in the first five games. The Reds did not have a prayer. And now usually there is a seven-game series in baseball for the World Series. But because of everything that was going on, they were trying to get back to normal in America, they decided to extend it to nine games instead of seven. They also decided to extend it because the owners knew that they could probably make about a million more dollars if they just played two extra games. And trust me, that does play a factor in the whole fix situation as well, because there is a lot of context to this. At the time, the American League was dominating all the World Series in the past decade. And like I said, man, these White Sox were really, really good. There was no American League team that had won more than 245 games that Chicago had won over the past three years. That's how good they were. So, let's talk about this team in general. In 1915, a guy named Charles Comiskey, he set out to buy the best baseball team that he could. And he knew that if he could get the best players, then he was going to win all the baseball games, all the World Series. That's going to put him on a huge pedestal. That's going to make him a shitload of money. So, one of the first people he gets is a guy named Eddie Collins. Eddie Collins was a star second baseman, and he was paid a record-breaking $65,000, and he was also the captain of the team. Now, how this worked out, and $65,000 back then was about $2 million today. We'll talk about it a little bit later on, but how this worked out when somebody bought you from another team. When you signed a contract with a, with a baseball team back then... You were theirs. They fucking owned you. You could not be disgruntled or quit. It was an all-or-nothing contract. So Comiskey, because of how good his team was and how rich he was, he could afford to go around and buy baseball players off of other teams. And that's exactly what he did. One of the next guys that he got was a guy named Happy Felsch. Obviously, that is not his real first name. His first name was Oscar. They called him Hap for short. And he bought him from Milwaukee for $15,000 at the time. Next guy he got was a phenomenal pitcher by the name of Lefty Williams. This dude had a crazy curveball. And he was a phenomenal pitcher. Very controlled curveball. One of the other guys, one of the best. Another pitcher by the name of Eddie Seacott. Eddie Seacott was a phenomenal pitcher because he had a crazy fastball and he could throw a curveball and throw a knuckleball and throw a shine ball. And this dude would combine all of these pitches and just screw people up. You could barely hit off of this guy. He was also a 29-game winner and the best pitcher in the American League. Another guy that he picked up was the best third baseman in the league who had the fastest hands 
and he was a huge fan favorite. His name was Buck Weaver. Then in 1917, Comiskey went and purchased two more players. One of them was Swede Reisberg. He was an amazing shortstop, and he could throw balls to first with just pinpoint accuracy and fast as hell, dude. And they compared, they said the accuracy of a rifle. That's how they compared him. By the way, I'll state my sources at the end of the episode. This is a fun episode for me, so I wanted to really jump into it. Another guy that he picked up was a first baseman by the name of Arnold Gandal, who went by the nickname Chick. He was a rough, rough dude. Chick Gandal was six foot two, two hundred pounds, and in the off season, he would box in the heavyweight division just to make extra money that he wasn't getting from baseball. For the most part, for twenty bucks a night, he would just knock dudes out. <laughs> That's all he did, and nobody liked this guy. He was always someone's enemy. For the most part, everybody's enemy. Now Charles Comiskey was bragging, hey, I'm putting together the greatest baseball team to ever hit the field. And to be honest with you, he truly was. And one of the greatest of these players was a guy named Shoeless Joe Jackson. And still to this day, Shoeless Joe Jackson is in the top five of almost all the hitting categories. Keep in mind, this is the early 19... This is over a 100 years ago. And this dude still is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. The part that kills me the most is he was banned from baseball in his prime. He hadn't even been playing in the major leagues that long. He is known to be one of the greatest, most natural hitters and baseball players all around of all time, like I had mentioned. And how he went and got Shoeless Joe Jackson, we're going to talk about him a little bit. He sent one of his business agents with a blank check to a guy named Connie Mack in the Philadelphia Athletics. And Comiskey said, I don't care what it costs, bring me back this fellow named Jackson. Joseph Jackson was an illiterate mill hand playing on a factory team in South Carolina. The guy could not read, he couldn't write, he's playing on a factory team, working in a mill, in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. Scouts for the Philadelphia Athletics, who was ran by Connie Mack, they're the ones who actually discovered him. And he was named Shoeless Joe because at one point in time during a game, his new pair of shoes were too tight, so he played the entire game in his socks. Now, Babe Ruth, we all know who that is. He came shortly after the whole ban happened and the whole scandal happened. And he said that Shoeless Joe's swing was so perfect that he copied it. That's how he would swing the bat because he would watch Shoeless Joe Jackson swing and he said it was the most perfect swing so he copied it and obviously he was very successful. So when Connie Mack's guys went to convince Shoeless Joe to sign a contract and it took a lot of convincing He eventually signed the contract, they put him on a train, and he's heading north, right? So this train stops in Greenville, South Carolina. Joe Jackson was a small-town guy. He didn't want to go to the big cities up north. He was lonely. He was also ashamed to go up there because in the big cities, he thought he was going to get made fun of because he was a little bit odd, he was illiterate, he was a farm boy. And he knew that people were going to insult him. 
So he just goes back home. He said, fuck it, you can have all your money back. I don't even want it. So Connie Mack, two more times, sends guys down to South Carolina to kind of coax Shoeless Joe to come back up north to Philadelphia and play for the baseball team. And Connie Mack even said, Joe, I will move your entire family up here if I have to. Like, if that's what you want, I don't care. You have to play baseball, dude. One of the documentaries I watched, I think the guy said it perfectly. He goes, it doesn't matter if you can read or write. When you can play baseball the way he played baseball, everybody's going to respect you. It doesn't matter if you're a farm boy from a small town in South Carolina in the big city of Philadelphia. You can play ball, kid. People will respect you. So that's how Shoeless Joe got into Major League Baseball. So Comiskey ended up paying $65,000 for Shoeless Joe Jackson in cash and trades in 1916. Like I said, $65,000 back then was about $2 million. After Shoeless Joe got on this team, Charles Comiskey knew that he had a World Series team. And everybody in the country is writing about all of them, all these players, this one team. One thing about them, though, is they were divided by personalities. You had the Southerners, which were Lefty Williams and Joe Jackson. They hung out together. Eddie Collins, who was a second baseman, and a guy named Ray Shaw, who was a catcher, they were buddies. And then the rest of the infield, which was Chick Gandel, Sweet Reisberg, and Buck Weaver... They really didn't have anything to do with them. And it's weird because when you watch warm-ups, you can see that the three infielders would never throw the ball to Collins because they didn't fucking like the guy. So Chick Gandel and Reisberg were the two bad guys on the team is how they described him. They were just really, really rough dudes. They also demanded respect. They were, they were straight-up alpha males. Now, if there's one thing that every single player on this team had in common, is they all despised Charles Comiskey. And let's talk about him for a minute. For the most part, the owners and Comiskey, they exploited baseball players. They were just straight-up laborers. They entertained for, you know, upper-middle class and rich people, and they were treated and traded around like toys and bought and sold and all these baseball team owners they had power they had money and they had the law behind them now unless you were traded a player was bound to a particular team for life the first ball club that brings him up to the major leagues that team owns his contract the player cannot do anything about it He either plays on those terms or he doesn't play at all. And this does not even take into consideration how many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that these teams and players are generating at the stadiums. You know, they're bringing these people in. They do not get shit for it. It's all the owners. Baseball was promoted as a sport, not a business. So, it was not subject to antitrust and free trade laws. 
Now, as a national pastime, baseball was granted a lot of leeway. The owners were able to market themselves as a profession based on American values. But in all actuality, they were fucking businessmen. They were trying to make as much money as they could based on the players that they got. And Charles Comiskey was one of the smartest marketers that was around at the time. He was also a rarity. He was the only owner that had actually played baseball himself. And that's one of the things that helped him recognize other great players really quickly. And he would go out and get them. It didn't matter. He would scour the entire United States for these phenomenal players. And it didn't matter what they cost, what he had to do to get them, he would get them. He had a great eye for talent, so a lot of these younger guys were blending into teams with veterans, and it was working out really good. Now, Charles Comiskey was a longtime friend of a guy named Ban Johnson. They were the founders of the American League. And Charles Comiskey really set his place in baseball as an owner. He was a founder of the Chicago White Sox. This team was a baseball team that made the city so happy that they wanted Charles Comiskey to run for mayor. And in the early 1900s, they were a super popular team, but they were also a second division team. They were not a pro first division team. So that was one of the things that held him back. But after he started building this team in the, uh, you know, the 1910s, that changed. Comiskey for me is kind of a conundrum. Like he makes me second guess myself. First of all, I'm a diehard Cubs fan, have been since the day I was born. There was no choice about it. That being said, I also respect the fact that he was probably the first baseball player to own a team. And because of that, he had a great eye for talent. I will say that. I always give credit where it's due. He had an amazing eye for talent. But he was also just a total asshole to his players. He treated them like shit. Charles Comiskey was one of those owners. Take it or leave it contracts. He didn't give a shit. He paid them below what everybody else was making, even though he had an amazing, amazing team. He cheated his players. He lied to them. He broke all the promises that he made to them. In 1917, the White Sox exploded, right? They won the American League pennant, and they won it by nine games. Then, in the World Series, they beat the New York Giants 4-2. to two. Just beat their ass. Comiskey promised his players a bonus if they brought him the pennant, and he kept his promise. You know what he got him? <laughs> he got him a case of cheap champagne. And there was a, a sports writer that was there who was talking to the guys when they got their champagne, you know, celebrating. He said it was so cheap that it tasted like piss. That was it. No bonuses, no money. A case of cheap champagne that tasted like piss. One of the shittiest things that he did to his team was something that he did to Eddie Seacott, his star pitcher. He told Eddie Seacott, you play for not that much money. If you win me 30 games, I'll give you a $10,000 bonus. So Eddie Seacott goes out and wins 29 games. There's two games left. When Seacott won his 29th game, Comiskey told the manager to not let him pitch in the last two games so that he could save himself $10,000. 
even though the White Sox were the best team in the league, they were paid less than second-rate players on second-division teams. It gets worse, trust me. Everybody thinks that the White Sox got their nickname, the Black Sox, because of the 1919 scandal. That is not true. They got their nickname probably right around 1917 because Charles Comiskey refused to pay for the laundry of his team's uniforms. So out of spite, the players didn't put their own money in to wash their uniforms. So they wore them as dirty as they possibly could just out of spite. And just for frame of reference, the owner not paying to have the team's uniforms washed was unheard of. Charles Comiskey was the only one to do this shit. Also, while most teams had, uh, I don't know, about $4 a day meal allowance for road trips or whatever, which was about 65 bucks a day, Comiskey set his limit at $3 a day, 45 bucks. So all of this adding up was pissing these players off bad. There is so much anger, there's unhappiness, his star players are pissed off, there's really nothing they can do about it. And it sucked because people like Charles Comiskey and other owners, they're making money hand over fist. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're doing just fine. And the players are underpaid. They're treated like shit. So in 1919, the White Sox were getting pissed about the way they're being treated. And it didn't matter because all the rules in Major League Baseball at the time were in favor of the owners. It should also be known that gambling and bribes were always a thing. They dated back years before the 1919 World Series. One of the reasons the series got um, so much attention and was such a huge dark spot on baseball was because of the bans that followed. And we'll get into that in part two for sure. But there was gambling. There's a lot of evidence to suggest the 1918 World Series was thrown as well. And that pisses me off because the Cubs could have won that, but whatever, you know. But anytime somebody would take information to, uh, you know, a higher up in the league or even a manager or an owner, they would look the other way because they didn't want to uh, tarnish the way that baseball was seen by the public, if that makes sense. Now, baseball was controlled by what was known as the National Commission. They had the American League president, they had the National League president, and they had one owner who would rotate as a chairman of the National Commission. So there was no well-defined leadership roles. The leadership was ineffective, and because baseball was so small at this time, uh, it was very interconnected. So if one person came forward and told on some other people, he would probably get blackballed, kicked off a team, fired, whatever. So everybody just kind of didn't say shit, looked the other way, and just played their games. Like I had mentioned before, another huge thing at this time was gambling. This was a pretty prominent relationship between baseball and gambling, You had gamblers in the ballpark making bets openly, 
and they had access to the players. It was not hard to find a fucking baseball player, you know, not necessarily in the parking lot like nowadays, but in the off season, at the hotel room, whatever the case might be. These dudes were fixing baseball games clear back to the 1800s, all right? So it wasn't really a new thing. It was just a new thing that it was a World Series and it was proven to have happened in 1919. But in 1918, there was a shitload of gambling going on. There was all this buzz and all this talk about games being fixed, blah, blah, blah. But nobody would ever say names. Owners would look the other way. In 1918, a guy named Hal Chase, who was considered one of the best fielding first basemen of this time period, everybody knew that he was fixing shit. He was making a few errors here and there so that gamblers could just bet on the outcome of the game and win a shitload of money, and he wouldn't look as bad, but people who knew him would look at him and be like, oh man, like something's going on, and he was suspected of this shit for a long time. But like I said, Hal Chase was known, he was notorious for throwing baseball games. The kicker was... He wasn't necessarily dealing with a lot of gamblers. What he was doing was fixing the games himself. So he would go lay down a bet on a baseball game himself, and then he would go out there and play that baseball game, lose purposely, and make a shitload of money. He just cut out the middleman is all he did. Now in 1918, his manager at Cincinnati, a guy named Christy Matheson, He brought charges against Hal Chase to the head of the National League. But in 1918, Christie went off to fight in World War I. So Hal Chase had nobody there to prosecute him, and they ended up dropping the case. So Hal Chase gets off the hook like he never actually has any repercussions for his actions. And this happens more than once. So other players are seeing this, and they're like, well, hell, man, everybody knows he's a dirty player, so if he's doing it, why don't we fucking do it too? Nothing's going to happen to us. It was uh, what they described as the risk-reward analysis. Makes sense, though, right? So Hal Chase ended up moving on to the Giants in 1919, and they just kind of swept it under the rug again. Now, as you can see, the whole idea of fixing a World Series, it's not really that surprising. And like I had previously mentioned, there's a lot of evidence that says the 1918 World Series was fixed as well. There was a gambler from St. Louis named Kid Becker who came up with the idea of fixing a World Series because that's way more money on the line than just a single game. And when 1918 kind of went to shit, I mean, yeah, they still had the games, but you had the best players not playing in the league at that point in time. So when 1919 came around, that whole idea just kind of carried over to what they refer to as the Fall Classic, which, uh, you know, is the World Series best of nine as opposed to a best of seven. And one thing the gambling people had that the owners weren't willing to give up is a lot of fucking money. So... You could go to a game, and you see no gambling signs everywhere. And there's people gambling right out in the open. Nobody cared. Uh, They described the no gambling signs as kind of like a public relations type thing. 
They would even pay some of the players with free liquor, good food, good meals. Sometimes they would give them women. Sometimes they didn't even have to throw the game. They just had to give them some useful information. You know, they could be like, hey, you know, Eddie Seacott's arm is not that good. He's he's hurting real bad. He might be throwing kind of shitty, and they would take that information and they would run with it. So because of this, once gamblers knew they had the power and they had the information, they have a little bit more control. And this is what happens. You know, the owners didn't give a shit. They turned a blind eye to it. They would get reports of games being thrown all the time, and they didn't want their teams or the sport of baseball to look bad because if you're a fan and you're going to a baseball game and you know that the baseball game is probably fixed, it's going to take all the fun out of it. So ticket sales are going to go down. That's going to hurt all the owners. That's going to hurt baseball as a whole. So that's why they kind of turned a blind eye to it. So with some of that context behind us, now you kind of have a feel for what's going on at the time with baseball, with ownership, with the White Sox as a team. Let's get to this particular series. This would be the first best of nine World Series since the first Fall Classic in 1903. The Reds finished with the best record in baseball, but somehow were still considered to be the underdog. Because the White Sox went into that World Series incredibly favored to beat the Reds. And at the time, it was a huge market for baseball. Like I said, people were coming home from World War I. Everybody is trying to feel normal again and happy again. So they are all flocking to these baseball games. And that's one of the reasons that owners extended the series to a best of nine instead of seven. Because they knew... They could make an extra million dollars in ticket sales. But Charles Comiskey's players, their pay remained the same. He didn't give a shit. They were taking it on the chin. The Red Sox, they did have a great team. Uh, they could hit. They could run. They had a great... They had the, actually the National League batting champion, Eddie Roush. Everybody in Cincinnati was saying, man, we're going to beat the White Sox ass. I will be honest with you. They were the only city in America who thought the Reds were going to win that series. Because going into the 1919 World Series, the White Sox were an early 5-1 to one favorite to win everything. So I'm sorry, Reds fans. I actually work with a Reds fan at work, and I was talking to him about this, and he was just getting mad. He's like, oh, they, uh, they could have won that series. It didn't matter. And I'm like, dude, the only people who say that were Cincinnati Reds fans. Like, stop. And don't get me wrong. Like, Roush was a phenomenal, phenomenal hitter. They had a great, great team. But the White Sox, man, they were good that year. And then here's where the fix comes into play. The White Sox are underpaid. They can't stand their owner. They asked for raises. They didn't get them. They didn't even get fucking laundry money. And first baseman, Chick Gandal, he actually drew up a plan to fix the World Series and discussed it with a few of his teammates during a midseason road trip. So this thing was in the plans for a minute. Like once they knew they were going to win the pennant, they were like, we can probably, we're going to go to the series, man. All we have to do is go there and lose, and we can all make a shitload of money. And he's telling all of his teammates, who he's kind of talking to about it, about the Cubs, who had thrown the 1918 World Series 
you know, just a year prior. And that everybody involved got $10,000. So all the other team members that Chick Gandle is saying this to, they're all kind of thinking to themselves, hey man, uh, this sounds like a pretty fucking good deal. I could use $10,000 because we're treated like shit by our owner and all we do is win. So Chick Gandle started putting together all these players for the fix. The first ones were Swede Reisberg, Fred McMullen, who was a utility man, and then you had outfielder uh, Happy Felsch. And these guys agreed to participate. But he needed more than that to fix the series because the most important part of any kind of fix for a baseball game is the pitcher. And the White Sox had two of the top pitchers in baseball with Lefty Williams and Eddie Seacott. So he gets them involved. Then Chick Gandle meets up with an old associate of his by the name of Joseph Sullivan, who was known as Sports Sullivan. He was a bookmaker. He was a gambler. And he tells Sports Sullivan, Hey, I got some really pissed off teammates that might be willing to throw the World Series if you can come up with enough cash. So, Sullivan promised $80,000 if Chick Gandle could orchestrate this entire fix. But he had to convince the gamblers that it was going to be a go, so he had to make sure that the two stars on the team were going to be involved too. And those two people were Buck Weaver and Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, it is possible that Shoeless Joe was included in this plan without his knowledge. He had been approached by Chick Gandle a couple times previously and offered money, and according to his grand jury testimony, he turned Gandle down both times. But Chick Gandle still counted Jackson as one of the eight men who were going to help fix the series so that he could convince Sports Sullivan that it was going to be a go and get the most amount of money possible. And one of the kickers is Sports Sullivan didn't have $80,000 on him. So he needed some cash. And he went to the one man that he knew was guaranteed to have the cash and would bet on everything except the weather. And he was the kingpin of organized crime and gambling and betting and fixing. And his name was Arnold Rothstein. He was known as the Big Bankroll. He was also known as the Great Fixer in New York City. It didn't matter. This dude had his hand in everything, and anybody familiar with early 1900s mafia knows exactly who Arnold Rothstein is. He was into bootlegging, racketeering, everything. So, Sport Sullivan goes to him and proposes this idea. So now we have Arnold Rothstein sitting back, contemplating on whether or not he wants to take this deal and whether or not it's a smart investment. So while he's thinking about this fix that was proposed by Sport Sullivan, there's another whole thing going on between the players and a second group of gamblers in New York City at a place called the Ansonia Hotel. A group of White Sox players were on a road trip, and they decided to go to uh, Chick Gandle's room to talk about the fix. While they're there, they're also joined by a guy named Billy Mayharg, who's a former boxer, and a guy named Sleepy Bill Burns, who was a former baseball player. And there's two sides to the story. One says that the two gamblers were approached by Eddie Seacott about fixing the World Series. The other side of the story says that they had heard about the fix through, you know, the word of mouth between gamblers, and they approached Seacott. 
Either way, the Sox are trying to collect twice on the same fix. Now, we do not know anything that was really said in that hotel room or who all specifically was in it and the whole arrangement. What we do know is that on that day, they agreed to throw the 1919 World Series. Now, as luck would have it, or no luck whatsoever, however you want to look at it, Burns and Mayharg didn't have any cash either. <laughs> so, in a sad, ironic twist of fate, they go to the one guy that they know does have the cash. They go and find Arnold Rothstein. And what Rothstein does is actually pretty smart. He blows them off very, very loudly and very publicly. And he did that so that if it came back on him, he had an alibi. You know, he could go back and be like, no, you can ask this entire crowd of people right here. They heard me cuss this guy out and tell him to get out of my face. Arnold Rothstein was a smart man. So we have a double cross, a double cross, and we got all this shit going on. One of Arnold Rothstein's associates, a guy named Abe Attell, he goes and tells Sleepy Bill Burns and Mayharg that Arnold Rothstein was back in on the fix and would give them $100,000. But Abe Attell was totally bullshitting. A fix sounds like kind of an easy thing. You give enough money, the players lose, you get paid, they get paid, everybody's happy. But that's not how it goes. It did not work out that way. So the players arrived in Cincinnati on the eve of game one. They were thinking this entire time that they had two groups of gamblers behind them and eight guys involved with a payday of $180,000 to split between the eight guys. It was supposed to be a secret, but it wasn't really a secret. Now, the Cincinnati Reds had a better record. They had a deeper pitching staff. And the early betting lines put the smart money on the Chicago White Sox to win the series. Until you started getting to the day before game one. And that's when the betting lines started to change more towards the Reds to win. And it wasn't because there was talent. It was because of all the rumors between the gamblers and then other people overhearing these rumors. And the rumors started getting more public that there was going to be a fix. And it was organized by the players themselves. So it was a deal of one guy tells another guy, another guy tells somebody else. A lot of rumors going around. So opening day of the World Series in Cincinnati, there was not a ticket anywhere. Every single fucking seat imaginable was sold out. Every single spare bed in the city of Cincinnati was sold because of people coming in from out of town. Hotels were filled. The lobby in the hotel where the White Sox were staying was mobbed by people, including celebrities and also gamblers, and they're waving around $100 bills. And they're all starting to lay bets on the Reds. But before the first game even started, the $100,000 that was promised by Bill Burns never arrived. $80,000 that was fronted by Arnold Rothstein for the fix, by the time it got to the baseball players, it was only $10,000 because of people skimming, 
Gamblers are making side bets with Arnold Rothstein's money because they knew it was a sure thing. So the $80,000, by the time it gets to Chick Gandle, turns into $10,000. Chick Gandle gives it directly to Eddie Seacott because he was the starting pitcher and he was key in throwing the game. When Eddie Seacott checked into his hotel room that night, he found $10,000 underneath his pillow. He would go on to later admit during his grand jury testimony, That night I found the money under my pillow. There was $10,000. I counted it. It was my price. And with that, the fix was on. Now, because of all the people involved and all the rumors about the White Sox players themselves fixing the World Series, people didn't know if it was fucking true or not. It was just rumors. But because of all this talk, you had journalists start taking a close ear to it. And a lot of these journalists were close friends with baseball players and with owners. And one of them that is going to come into play is a guy named Hugh Fullerton. He was a very well-respected journalist, and he was a very close confidant of Charles Comiskey. He hears the rumors, and what he does is he grabs one of his friends who was a pitcher who was already covering the series for the New York newspaper. So Hugh Fullerton asked Christy Mathewson if he would sit with him during the games, and if there was any weird play that appeared suspicious, to circle it and write it down. Because he had heard so many rumors by this point in time, he needed to know if it was just him, because he wasn't a baseball player. So he got a baseball player to sit there with him and watch the game. So that brings us to the 1919 World Series. And before we go any further, we're going to stop for a quick break. Going to play some ads. Um, You can fast forward three or four minutes, or you can use this time to take a break. Either way, I will see you back here in a few. All right, we're back. So on October 1st, 1919 was the opening day of the World Series. By the time the White Sox and Reds got onto the field, the odds had shifted radically in favor of the Reds. Game 1. On the mound at the beginning of the game was pitcher Eddie Seacott. He fires a crazy fastball. It was a perfect strike. And it was the last good pitch of the day. His second pitch hit the Reds' leadoff batter right in the back between the shoulders. And the fans are like, what in the hell is going on? Because Eddie Seacott was known to have the best control in the American League. He only hit two players all year. And this was his second pitch of the game. And he hit the Reds' leadoff batter. But it was not a wild pitch. It was a pre-designated signal to Arnold Rothstein in New York that the fix was on. He was the first to give Christy Mathewson reason to circle it and say, yeah, that might be a little weird. And then he raised a lot more suspicion in the fourth inning. He had a chance to end the fourth inning with a double play, and he hesitated just a little bit before he threw to second, and Chicago only got one out on that play. And the inning continued. Eddie proceeded to give up five straight hits. The White Sox lost that game 9-1. to So after game one, Hugh Fullerton, that journalist, 
he goes to Charles Comiskey and he tells him, hey, there's all these rumors about this fix and your boy Eddie Seacott might be just proven that there is one. And Comiskey, he took this information to Ban Johnson, who was the American League president. Ban Johnson had the power to investigate the rumors, and he could have suspended the entire World Series until all this shit was figured out, but he didn't. Because even though Comiskey and Ban Johnson were friends in the past, they had a huge falling out at some point in time, probably over money, and they had no relationship together. So Ban Johnson basically took the rumors... And told Comiskey, his exact words were, that sounds like the yelp of a beaten cur. Which basically was saying, yeah, your team's going to fucking lose. Why wouldn't you say there's a fix to have it suspended? To have another chance to win this series? So, Ban Johnson did not take this shit seriously. Even though Comiskey did go to him and could have had the series suspended. If those allegations would have been taken seriously from you know, the get-go after game one, I wouldn't be talking about this right now. So, let's go into game two. Now, because of Eddie Seacott's performance in game one, game two is led by the pitcher Lefty Williams. He was a huge control pitcher, threw a curveball. That day in game two, he had no control, and he didn't throw any curveballs. Lefty Williams walked three batters in the fourth inning, and all three would come around to score. The White Sox did play a little bit better, but the Cincinnati Reds ended up beating them still 4-2. Now they trail in the series 2-0, best of 9. So, after the second game, Hugh Fullerton again is like, Man, I'm telling you, something's going on here. And all the people he's talking to can't get anything done about it. So, we go back to Chicago for Game 3, and... By Game 3, it's an interesting scenario because the players are very, very restless. The gamblers are betting game by game, and they are making a shit ton of money right now. But the players hadn't been paid. The only thing that they've gotten so far is about $20,000. And that was just from Sports Sullivan. So the players are looking at this as like, the gamblers are fucking us. They're not paying us this money. They're skimming money off the top. They're placing bets. They're making money. We're throwing an entire World Series because our owner won't pay us money. <laughs> so <laughs> they're in this whole situation right now with Game 3. Now, Lefty Williams and Eddie Seacott did not pitch Game 3. This little pitcher named Dickie Kerr was the guy who comes up to the mound and he was not in on the fix. And this dude became a folk fucking hero. He was a miracle because he kept the Cincinnati Reds from scoring. And as they're going through this game, they're winning. You know, they're doing all right. Dickie Kerr is getting it done. And at this point, Chick Gandal hasn't received any more money. The gamblers are making money off of them throwing the first two games. They're getting fucked. So Chick Gandal says, you know what? Screw it. He cracks one out. He scores Joe Jackson and Hap Felch, and the Sox end up winning 3 to nothing. The Reds still lead the series 2-1, to one, and the players are starting to get as pissed with the gamblers as they are the owner, Comiskey. 
One of the theories is that by them winning game three, the White Sox were sending a message to the gamblers saying, hey man, we can win these games at any point in time if we want to. You want to pay us or do you want to owe people a lot of money? Because we won't fix the series unless you pay us. And like I said, it's just a theory, but it makes sense. You know what I'm saying? So they go into game four and you have third baseman Buck Weaver. And Buck Weaver, everybody always talks about Shoeless Joe Jackson and how sad his story is. I will be perfectly honest with you. In part two, when you hear Buck Weaver's story, this dude never committed to the fix at all. And his story is absolutely heartbreaking. Now, Buck Weaver, who was never in on the fix, he's trying to win these games. But the other players who are in on the fix, they're like, you know what? No money has come. It's game four. Let's go. But the gamblers got the message. And by now, (laughs) unfortunately, the Bill Burns Mayhard group, they lost all their money because Chicago won that game three. So those gamblers are out. They don't have any more money to give to Chicago. So before the start of the fourth game, Chick Gandel, he demands another $20,000 from Sport Sullivan. He gets it, and he gives five grand each to Felch and Reisberg. Lefty Williams got another $10,000, and Lefty was told to give $5,000 of this money to Shoeless Joe Jackson. It was money that was just kind of given to Joe Jackson. We don't, whether he was involved or not, he admitted in his grand jury testimony that he took the money that was given to him. He admitted it was a mistake, but that was the only thing he did. He didn't actively play bad to fix the series. He was handed $5,000 and he took it. Now we have five out of eight players who have pocketed money. Eddie Seacott's job in game four is to look good but lose and he did just that along with his teammates it was a shutout into the fifth inning nobody had scored and then eddie seacott made two errors and then he gave up two runs the white Sox lost two to nothing and they are losing the series three to one now remember this is a best of nine so if you win five games series is over After Game 4, the White Sox never saw another penny of the money that they were promised. They go into Game 5. The White Sox were fucking awesome. Lefty Williams was the pitcher. They did great. But the Reds ended up winning the game and now lead the series 4-1. Game 6. They throw Dickie Kerr back in for the White Sox on the mound. And he was phenomenal. Like I said, man, this little dude who's this tiny little Bush League pitcher. He was playing for this tiny little team in Paragold, Arkansas. And now he's coming along and just killing it in the World Series, right? So this dude is like a fucking hero. But on the other side, the White Sox players who were in on the fix, they had a tough choice to make right now in Game 6. Because if they lose this game, the series is over. They've barely made any of the money that they were promised. They're going to lose the series. They're going to look like assholes. The whole word is out that the series is fixed anyway. And they came to the conclusion that they were in way over their heads. And they had two choices. If they admit everything to the owners, 
they knew that their careers would be over, and that would be the end of it. And if they won the game, they were terrified about what these gamblers and some of these muscle men who worked for the gamblers, they were scared of what they were going to do to them. Because these are dangerous guys. They would break legs, they would break arms, they would beat the shit out of your wife and your house. They didn't give a shit. They wanted their money. So they're sitting here in this game six, and they have this choice. They don't have anywhere to go. They can't go to the owners. They can't fuck over the gamblers and try to work a different deal. So they decided to win the game. Now the series is 4-2 to two in favor of the Reds. Then comes game seven. Like I said, there's nowhere to turn for these guys at this point. So it becomes a thing of pride to win this World Series. Baseball is the only thing that they were good at. They didn't care about the money. They didn't care what happened. They hadn't been paid, so the fix is not going to happen. The gamblers screwed them over. Owners are screwing them over. So it literally is a thing of pride. And the Sox fucking exploded in the seventh game. They smashed four hits in the sixth inning, and they won the game 5-4. to four. And the tides, they all kind of shift. All the Chicago fans are so hopeful that they're going to come back and win this World Series. If they can win Game 8, they can tie it 4-4, to four and they're going into Game 9, dude. And that is insane, and that's exciting, and that's what we love about baseball. But by the time Game 8 rolls around, so does Arnold Rothstein. And Arnold Rothstein is not going to give up money, and he's not going to bet on something if he's going to lose. He'd never bet on anything he would lose. So the night before the eighth game of the World Series, Arnold Rothstein sent a gangster to threaten Lefty Williams. This gangster told Lefty Williams if he did not throw the game in the first inning, they were going to maul his wife. So game eight comes around, Lefty Williams starts, he gave up four runs in the first inning, and he was pulled from the mound after just a third of the inning. Eight innings later, the World Series was over, and the Sox had lost. Abe Attell, one of Arnold Rothstein's side guys that I had previously mentioned, he later described the whole thing as cheaters cheating cheaters, and that's honestly what it was. Now, you can't go back now because there is limited film, and you can get on YouTube and watch film of some of the games and stuff like that. It's, it's honestly pretty damn cool to think that that was over 100 years ago. People who were there only saw this one time. The only evidence that you have is statistics and some of the rumors. Happy Felsch, he batted 180. He had four errors. He was in on the fix, you can tell. Then you had Eddie Collins. He batted... 230-something. He only had a couple RBIs. People could look at him and be like, yeah, yeah, he's throwing the series, or maybe he just had a bad series. Shoeless Joe Jackson had the highest batting average on either team at 375. He had the only home run. He accounted for 11 of the Sox 20 runs through the series. But I will say this. A lot of his stats and his home run and his hits, came after the games were already a lost cause. You have to keep that in mind. Buck Weaver also had a great, great series. He batted 324. He played flawless defense. 
and he never, ever took any money, and he was not in on the fix. He knew that there was something being planned, but when you think about it, who the fuck's he going to report it to? Everybody in baseball already knew what was going on. Comiskey knew it. The journalists knew it. Ban Johnson knew it. Nobody fucking did anything about it. So it's difficult to say how the game actually went. But this is just the beginning. In part two, we're going to dive into the repercussions. We're going to talk about the trial and what happened with the guys after all this and how it actually got brought to light. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And um, yeah, ways you can get a hold of me, you can always email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, mysterious underscore podcast. You can find me on Twitter, at podcastmc. You can like the Facebook page. You can join the Facebook group. Just type in Mysterious Circumstances on Facebook. I am not hard to find. Uh, If you do go to join the group, all that we ask is that you answer the questions or you will not get let in. My admins have strict orders and they do a great job. So, yeah, you can join in the conversation. You know, you can follow me on other social media, whatever the case is. Um, some of the sources, yeah. So there's two or th- there's three documentaries that I saw on um, MLB channel. One was Triumph and Tragedy. Another one was the 100th anniversary of the 1919 World Series, and that was done by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library. Another one was In Search of History. That was a great documentary. And then... Um, Yeah, like a few various articles, all of them really say the same shit. Unless you get the book Eight Men Out, which is a phenomenal read. Highly suggest that book. There's also a movie that they made out of that book. That being said, I'll see you folks on the flip side. 